Having flown to Christchurch to support journalists in the wake of the terror attack that unfolded on March 15, 2019, I have images of people and places etched in my mind. Strangely, what I experience firsthand are not the images that remain the strongest for me. What I see most clearly in my mind as I recollect the events of that day and the days directly following it are the images that appeared online, in newspapers and on our television screens. The images that many of us recall, the victims, those caught in the horror, the personnel from emergency services, the police, the car of the shooter, those left shell-shocked by what happened, they didn't just appear. There were people behind those lenses, experiencing it as it unfolded and giving us a visual account of what was happening. What was it like for them? I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister, broadcaster. This podcast series highlights the stories of six Christchurch journalists who are on the front lines of giving a voice to the victims and keeping us all informed of what was happening as it happened. Because of my proximity to some of the journalists that weekend, I know there were decisions being made about what was appropriate for the public to see and what the decision makers protected us from. I'm grateful for their decisions. There were things seen that no human should ever have to see. In the case of visual journalists, photographers and camera operators, they were not only seeing it, they were documenting it. Their work was important, adding a significant dimension to the historical record of those days. Future generations will be able to draw on their imagery to get a sense of what happened. But what impact did it have on those behind the lens? Welcome to episode 4 of Friday Prayers. In this episode, I chat with George Hurd, a visual journalist with Stuff at the time of the attack, now with NewsHub. George is no stranger to throwing himself into tragic events to make sure there's a visual account of what has happened, but this was something on a scale he had not encountered before. George captured imagery that will probably never see the light of day. Hey George, thanks for taking a little bit of time with me. I really appreciate it. That's all right. Now, I was just having a chat with Blair uh, not long ago, one of your colleagues, and he he mentioned you. And the information I have says that when it came to March 15, you were first on the first reporter on the scene. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, I was working for Stuff, the press, and uh, yeah, I was the first photographer outside the mosque, first person there. Yeah, it's pretty full on. We'll jump into what you saw shortly. But how did March 15 start for you? The day, yeah, um, the it day. started off very calm. I was doing um, vaccinations at the local clinic, taking photos and everything. And then um, it was sort of winding down. It was a Friday, became very quiet, and I just went to McDonald's, got some McDonald's, and I was on the way back to the office. What did you have at McDonald's? What did I have? That was uh, McChicken. Ah. Chicken combo, there we go. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that you remember? Because yeah. if, if the day had not been what it was, I bet you wouldn't be able to remember what you'd had, no. unless it's the same thing you get every single time. No, no, I, I haven't actually thought about it, but yes, it was a McChicken. <laughs> <laughs> and how did, that, how did it pan out from there? Uh, from there on in, I went back to the office, sort of went in, sat down at my desk, and Joelle, who was my news director at the time, she sort of said, oh, can you go down to Dean's Ave? Apparently there's cops out with guns. And we'd been chasing this stuff all week. It had been hectic, you know. I'd been going to scene, 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 and it all, it all tumbled over to be nothing. So I kind of grumbled and said, do we really need to keep chasing this mm. constantly and constantly? She said, oh, look, just go down, have a look, and then come back if it's nothing. So I sort of took really light gear, but enough to get me through. So I was driving down there, and I think I was on um, – coming down uh, Carlton Mill Corner and um, I got a call from Joelle or Blair, uh, yeah, no, Joelle, and she said to me, 
apparently there's two people two people dead outside the mosque, two bodies. And I said, oh, right, okay. So we kind of got down to Dean's Ave a little bit faster than usual, as you would, and then um, got, traffic was backed up for miles. So I parked my car in a hotel car park and just started running on foot. And then I got to Dean's Ave, Rickton Road, and there was one cop that had closed off the road and was sort of trying to control stuff, but no one really knew what was going on. So I walked through Dean's Ave and I came outside. The first thing I saw was I was outside the motel. I can't remember what the motel's called. And um, there was a guy in the back of an ambulance and he was no top on, covered in blood. Mm. I was like, okay, this is a bit weird. Is it happening outside the hotel? Has it happened outside the mosque? What's going on? So I sort of walked down further and met by four guys from um, from the mosque, and they sort of I sort of said to them, "What's happened? What what what's going on?" And they said to me, "I remember I've still got the recording on my phone. I listened to it the other day, and they said, oh, there's a guy that walked in with a machine gun and shot everybody.'" And I was kind of like, "What? This doesn't happen in New Zealand, you know. You don't really expect mm. anything like that to happen." And uh, so it's explaining to me what 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 happened and everything. I was like, where's the mosque? Because I don't, didn't really know where the Dean's Ave mosque was at all. So I walked further down and I got to the mosque and everyone that had been in the mosque at the time was outside or near the mosque was outside looking towards the mosque and there was police everywhere, ambulance everywhere. So I sort of hung out with them across from the, across the road from the mosque and um, th- that basically just went on for there. The police were yelling at everyone and telling us to hide behind trees because they didn't know what was inside or what bombs or anything. Still had the, all their guns pointed at the mosque and escorting people out and mm. whatnot. And, um, yeah, you could just see the carnage that had already unfolded and you were trying to, trying to gather what had happened. You know, there was bodies everywhere and then I sort of got a looked to the door of the mosque and saw, you know, there was a pile of bodies just by the door. And I was like, oh, right, this is very serious. Yeah, I, I think it, it's good to drive home the seriousness of that because we've heard the stories now, we've, we've read the reports, we've listened to the interviews. We're talking about, we're talking about bodies lying there that haven't died naturally. It's not, a, it's not even an earthquake, which Christchurch has experienced. Someone has come in and those people have been, have been shot. Yeah, definitely. And I think the ones that kind of hit most were the, you know, the, there was two uh, females on the road and then there was this guy that I was talking to and he was just breaking down in tears. And I said, well, what's wrong? What's, what's happened? And he said, my wife, she's there, she's dead. And I was just sort of taken back, like, oh, my God, like, this is happening. Mm. You know? And, mm. you know, for a long time, I still didn't try, like, I, you know, I, I said to myself that I didn't know what was going, but I didn't really know what was going on. And, and it did take me a long time to actually figure out that it was a terrorist attack. Yeah. There's, there's no training to prepare someone for something like that. How do you, how do you work your way through that? Well, usually... Usually with this job, you hide behind the lens, you know, you sort of exclude yourself from the situation. But with something like this, you couldn't really do that. There was, you know, you're surrounded by people that had just witnessed this attack. Like you couldn't, there was no way from hiding it at all. Mm. Your day-to-day work and the lead up and the lead up to that in particular, uh, like I, I understand you're a self-trained videographer, so it's not like you've been through any formal training on how to do what you do. How, how did you gain the skills? Um, so I started off when I was 16. I was doing freelance work for um, News Hub TV3 and then sort of just progressed and everything. And then um, it came to year 13. I didn't really know what I wanted to do out of school. Mm. And then um, I moved up to Hamilton and started at the Waikato Times, fortunate enough. So I stayed up there for uh, six months and then got transferred to the press. 
So it was all just kind of fell on my feet, really. <laughs> As a uh, Hamilton lad myself who currently lives there, good man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What sort of stuff have you seen? Like you talk about dead bodies, and again, it can sound very matter of fact, but in, in your work prior to that, what sort of stuff had you seen as someone who needs to be out there taking photos? I mean, there's still horrific stuff that happens in our country outside of uh, the mosque shooting. What else have you seen? Car crashes, they've probably been the worst. Yeah. Um, there was one really bad one in Hamilton where there was four people dead. That was a pretty gross one. There was a lot of body parts and stuff involved in that, but... Um, yeah, it's mainly car crashes that are probably the most gruesome ones that you come across. Mm. Nobody, nobody is built to see that stuff. I don't think. No. Uh, how do you how do you deal with it? Um, yeah, it's an interesting way that when people say, "Oh, you know, how do you how do you deal with it after March fifteenth and everything?" You know, obviously, work sent me to a few counselling sessions and stuff. Good. I personally didn't really find them overly helpful, just because they didn't really understand what I was coming from. Mm. And a good friend of mine, Ian McGregor, he. Um, sat me down one day and he said, you know, look, I've been through this stuff before. If you ever need to talk about it, let's just go for a beer and talk mm. about it. And, yeah. you know, and I've done that many times with them and it's great. It's the best way to sort of release yourself from it all. Mm. Did you have that sort of thing in place prior to March 15th? I mean, if you're seeing body parts from car crashes all over the place, I mean, there's stuff that you need to process. Yeah, yeah, I did, did talk to him about it beforehand, you know, and there's a lot of people that do, because I was very, still am very young, people say, oh, like, you know, you're right seeing this stuff. Are you dealing with it okay? You know, people do check up on you, which is good. Yeah, and do you drink black coffee? <laughs> yes. So just drink the black coffee straight, and move on? Straight black coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've sat down with a journalist yet who doesn't drink black coffee. <laughs> I sit there having my flat white when we're having a discussion and I feel like I'm, I'm just a little bit, I'm not quite there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did the, so you went through took the photos, and I would imagine you took some photos that probably haven't seen the, the light of day. Yeah, a lot of the photos that I took in that first half an hour did not see the light of day, and they never probably will see the light of day just because they are so gruesome. Um, the photos that I was sent, because I luckily had a cable that attaches to my phone and the camera, and I was sending those photos back every five minutes, and I kept on getting um, replies and phone calls saying, look, we can't publish these, can you send us something else? And I think the first photo that got published on stuff was a photo that was gruesome, but it was cropped, so you couldn't see anything else. So it looked like a very, very weird photo. It was just the blurred back of a policeman. Mm. And, um, yeah, for the first half an hour, the newsroom and I were really struggling to get something that wasn't graphic. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think all the photos that I did take, they're in the system, but they've all just got no publish, no publish, no publish. I think it's really important for people to know that. In an age where people are a little bit cynical about the media and journalists, sadly, uh, where they think it's all about clickbait, um, there is probably no better clickbait in a situation like that than the bodies. And yet here stuff is, and the same went for pretty much everybody else in New Zealand who was publishing stories, uh, stuff held back from what would have been probably the biggest clickbait New Zealand has ever known. Yeah, exactly. And hands off to, you know, those editors and everything were working higher up when all that stuff came through to actually make that call then and then saying, we are not publishing the video, we are not publishing these photos, you know. Mm. And if that didn't happen, you, like you said, you know, we could have just published them in clickbait and, you know, to get the clicks, but we actually filter it, you know, we don't, we don't do that. 
Yeah, same goes with the video. The video could have been very easy to put out there, and of course people could find it on the internet if they went looking, but it was great to see our media outlets making the call not to put that out there. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So true. How do, you, how do you end a day like that? Because at what point do you go, my work is done for the day, I'm heading home? <laughs> so Blair Ensor and I were still at the scene at I think 11.30 that night, mm. and um, We'd been pumping out stories constantly, and I think you know we were both getting batteries dead. Everything was going dead. We're like, "What do we do?" So we sort of made the call to go back to the office, and um, on the way back, go to uh, where his car was found. So we got a photo of that where his car was found, and then came back to the office, and we were, everyone was still there. You know, mm-hmm. the office was still going, and um, so we were told to go home, get up early in the morning. So I did, went home, and got straight into a few beers. And I could not sleep one bit. I would imagine. I wouldn't imagine. So you're left yep. alone with your thoughts all of a sudden. Yep, yep. You're sitting there. It's the middle of the night. You know, you got the helicopter circling around you. You're like, what has happened? Mm. You know, you got to try and think through it all and everything. But yeah, it was a very hard night. <laughs> so uh, can you, can you describe any what was going on in your head? Um, it was more just the adrenaline still pumping through my body. Mm. You know, like it it took me a long time to come to terms with things. Even from the get-go, like, I remember after, I was probably half an hour after it all happened, we thought the hospital was getting attacked too. Mm. So I was walking to the hospital, and I needed to calm myself down a little bit. So I called my mother. So I had a phone call with her, and she remembers, I was talking to her the other day, but she remembers me just, like, sounding like I just was running a marathon or something. Like, I was just pumping with adrenaline and just trying to get her to calm me down. But... Yeah, it's all those trying to find those things that do calm you down. I yeah. think it's the best part. Yeah. Can you remember any of that conversation with your mum? Um, I remember her asking me, well, what is going on? Because she had no idea. And I also didn't really have much of an idea. Um, but no, I can't really remember much of it. Yeah, that's crazy. Eh? What a, a crazy space to be in. So you, you go back to work the next day after not, after not really sleeping. Uh, it would be easy to crash at that point. How did, how did you manage to keep going? Um, we got up at... It was really it. I think we got down there about six o'clock yeah. to back down to Dean's Ave. And it was, we were, there was no one there again. And it was still like, well, this is a big story. Where is all the international media? And um, we sort of just got into the day, really. And it just sort of led on and on and on. And you're, obviously, he was in court at, I can't remember, it was sometime early in the morning, about nine o'clock. So, yeah, we just sort of got into it and started pumping out stories again. <laughs> Just keep, just keep just doing keep, the job. Keep running the engine, man. At what at what point did you crash? Because uh, when you're on that much of an adrenaline high, you have to come down at some point. Yeah. So um, we were, I worked until the Sunday, and Mark Stevens pulled me aside, who um, is one of the guys at Stuff, and said to me, "Hey, look, I want you to come in on Monday. I want you to talk to this counselor, and then we're chucking you straight on a flight down to Queenstown to go home and see your family. Good, and take." as much time as you want off. And um, so, yeah, I came in that Monday morning, got on a flight down to Wanaka, and then I was out fishing on the lake with my old man, and I still could not get it out of my head. I just wanted to be back doing my job in Christchurch. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. You because could, You couldn't get away from it. You know, your phone was just going constantly, you know. You just want to be back there. So I think I spent two or three days back down there. 
I was like, look, I need to come back. I was like, you've got to, you've got to let me to come back. Yeah, it would be impossible, I think, to unwind that early in the piece. Yeah. Probably needed a week or two before you could get to that space. Yeah, definitely. I just definitely needed a lot more time than that. But I think, yeah, I came back and then got back into it and then took a few days off a few weeks down the track, which was a good call. You know, mm. it's it's hard to switch off after something like that. Oh, yeah. Now, for, for a lot of journalists, if they're, uh, say, interviewing people or they're writing stories, they generally have, uh, say, in that situation, victims that they remember that they latch onto. It's a way of processing, is having the person. You're a little different in that what you do is take images. You're not primarily there to, to get the interviews and get the stories and even connect with the people necessarily. Do you have anything that any people that stand out, or as a videographer, is that a whole lot harder? There was three people that stood out to me that day. Um, there was firstly the guy who um, his wife just died, and um, he I gave him a hug, and he was just crying and crying and crying. Mm. He stood out to me quite um, quite a lot. And then there was the man. I had a cigarette because I was just needed a cigarette, so I lit one up, and then. Um, this guy came over to me and said, do you have a cigarette? I need, need a cigarette now. I gave him a cigarette and then about 10 other people came over. Do you want a cigarette? I was like, look, it was my last one. Isn't it amazing in that space? Like, I, I'm not a smoker. Um, it did when I was younger and it wasn't tobacco. Uh, <laughs> but it's amazing how communal it is. Yeah. In a situation like that, I could imagine a whole lot of people being calmed down uh, by having a cigarette and having other people standing there doing it too. Yeah, yeah. It was That was pretty yeah that's something I def- definitely do remember you know it was just like everyone wanted a cigarette and needed a cigarette at that time and now you know I only had one left in my packet and I was like look mate go for it <laughs> and then the other person that stood out to me that day was this guy that got very angry at me he came over to me and started yelling at me you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be you shouldn't be here and he's from the mosque and um you know you and that in this job you do get that a lot mm. you do get told to go away or piss off or whatever and I sort of just shrugged it off, you know, like I'll just do my job, get down to it. And then about, probably about two months later, I was in the mosque doing an interview with News Hub. And then um, this guy came over to me and he said, I saw you on the day, didn't I? And I was like, yes, I think so. <laughs> and he goes, I've been wanting to say this ever since it happened. I am so, so sorry for telling mm-hmm. you to go away. And he said, can I give you a hug? And I said, go for it mate like you know you don't I, I you know you shouldn't be apologizing to me I should you know I should technically be apologizing to you mm. and yeah he said you know I've, it's been on my mind ever since it happened I just wanted to apologize to you which mm. was quite cool so this is something unique about this story but the connection between journalists and victims in this seems to be something quite quite unique that most of the country just hasn't hasn't seen got any reflections on that yeah I think because, well, as you're talking to a whole lot of people that were first there, you know, we were a part of their day and mm. they were a part of ours. So I think that's sort of like, you know, we all reflect on that day. It would be a day that no one ever forgets. So having that connection between each other is quite quite cool, quite nice. You know, you can talk about it with each other or whatnot. Mm. And in, in being someone who's caught the imagery, you've given them a way to remember and to, to process it. So your, your fire uh, service, your ambulance, your police, they turn up and they help. They, they help in that situation. Part of good counselling or chaplaincy in terms of what I do is just giving people a space to talk, talk about what's gone on for them. Uh, and that's a, it can be, if it's done well, like you're over a beer or whatever, that can be really healing. It can help people move on. It's what journalists are doing in the situation when it's done well, is they're giving that, that people that space to process. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, and in terms of what you do, memento is the wrong word, but the imagery to be able to remember and to process as well. Yeah, I guess it's you know quite nice you know looking back on that day and sort of point like pointing out things or going through the photos or whatever. Yeah. Mm. That, that image of particularly those who take the photos or the videos at, at accidents, uh, car accidents, um, things like this, there's, there's that, I guess that imagery that some people have of you guys being vultures. Uh, how do you stay in it when that sort of cynicism is thrown at you all the time? Uh, you learn to ignore it. <laughs> That's the way I found out. You know, someone tells you to piss off or whatever or yells at you, you just ignore it. You know, they, they don't get it. They don't, obviously they don't understand what you're there to do. You know, you, you read the comments online or whatever and telling you how much of a vulture you are mm. and how disrespectful you are and whatnot, but you just learn to ignore it. You know, I've had messages to my own Facebook, you know, threats and everything and whatnot, but you just ignore it. What, what, you know, what's the point in feeding it? Mm. Can I ask how old you are? 22. 22, mate. Having to process that sort of stuff at 22, uh, I would have been ripped apart by that sort of feedback. Yeah, yeah. Well I think, done. I think man. the most the most abusive one I got was when I was 18. I think it had been the job for about three <sighs> months, and it was just telling me he would go to court over what he'd do to me. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so what, what did you do at 18? How do you respond to that at 18? Yeah, I just blocked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a very well together at 18 years old. Uh, I would have either been uh, an emotional mess or I would have wanted some sort of massive revenge, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for those listening in then who may hold that view of someone like yourself being a vulture, why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Um, Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to, you know, you've always got to have your news. You've, everyone's still going to read the news. You've got to show people what is going on. If, say if there was no photos from that day, no one would know what was going on. I don't think the impact would have been the same on New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. We're a very visual culture now. Yeah. And of course, history needs to be able to look back because the only way we, we prevent these things from happening again is by remembering and changing things. Now, if we can't see what's taken place, it can become whatever whatever in the public imagination, whereas the imagery tells us, reminds us exactly what, what happened. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you take out, if you take out all the photos that anyone took on the day, if you take out that photo of the Prime Minister that Kurt took or through the glass that everyone's seen a million times, mm. you wouldn't have much of an idea what re- is really going on in New Zealand, mm. and which would be very hard. So, you know, if you think we're vultures or whatever, just take that but a bit of information with it as well, if you kind of get what I'm get what I'm saying. Yeah, the irony is that people hold that cynicism towards journalists and videographers, and yet they're still consuming the information that you that you pump out. They're looking at the images that that you're taking. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. How how did you move on from that? How did how did you get back into normal? Normal. I mean, none of your work is overly normal. But how do you get back into normal work after the peak of something like that? Because that's a, hopefully in New Zealand a once in a lifetime. Yeah, um, it was very hard. It was kind of hard to come back to, you know, your day-to-day journalism of the old lady that's lost her cat or whatever. But I think the first story that kind of clicked for me and it got me back into doing it was a storm over on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I think it was about three months after it happened. It t- oh, no, sorry, two months after it t- happened. And it took out the bridge down the West Coast. And, you know, it was kind of 
being on the West Coast, it was great. You were out of Christchurch, you were excluded from all that stuff, and you were just, you know, covering another storm event. Mm. And that was kind of good. That kind of got me back into day-to-day journalism, which was good. Mm. Coming around to the anniversary, uh, I've seen that there's been some more threats. Uh, flew in last night, drove past the mosque, and uh, it was a heavy police uh, presence. Any any triggers for you in there? Um <clears throat> Yeah, I'd say there probably would be. You know, I found out when I was at home and I sort of kind of got a bit jittery again. You know, mm. I was like, what's going to happen? You know, I was down in Wanaka when I found out and I was sort of like, well, you know, are we going to have to be on edge again? Am I going to have to be constantly on edge? When are we going to have to go? Are we going to have to go? What's going on? But, you know, then you just look at it as, is it just a threat? You know, is it just a threat or is it something more? You know, it could just be someone playing games and trying to, mess with everyone's heads right before, you know, a very important day for quite a lot of people. Mm. Do you feel like if if, uh, if something did happen, you're equipped to jump back in? Yep, yep, Good. straight back into it. <laughs> Good. Hey, George, it's been a pleasure hanging out. And in relation to what you do, is there anything you'd like the public to know that you think they're not really aware of? Um, we are real people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just people behind cameras or people in front of cameras that just talk we are real people we do have families we do have everything else you know we're basically the same as you are yeah i like that and and not just that the if i if i've encountered anything in journalists uh not too dissimilar from myself as a minister there's a cause there there's wanting the world to be a better place there's wanting to tell stories uh, to highlight things that others might not know about. That's a real, it's a real cause. Yep. Uh, and there's a healing element to that. So from myself to you, uh, thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was George Hurd. A big thanks to the NZME team in Christchurch for providing the facilities to be able to record that conversation. In the next episode, I chat with Rachel Das, reporter for News Talk ZB. Rachel's work in gathering stories from people at the hospital was an important part of the coverage for both News Talk ZB and the New Zealand Herald. 